If you brought a copy of scripture with you this morning, you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we really begin in earnest our series, More Like Jesus. We gave the introduction to it last week. And today we talk about our foundational core, and that is the gospel. That's the very title of the message, the gospel. And I don't presume upon anyone when I preach that they understand, much less have received, the gospel. Nothing is more important than the content of the subject of this message for you and for me. And you'll see it in the text itself. Many years ago, in fact, it was, I think, the first year I was here at Sailorville at that time, Sailorville Baptist Church. It was a Sunday night, and I posed the question to people that were very educated. What is the gospel? And I, and I just put it out there, and I started getting all kinds of response. Salvation, God, Jesus, which is always the right answer, right? The Bible, somebody said. And I knew I had my work cut out for me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is an entire argument for the resurrection. It's the greatest theological treatise uh, study of the resurrection you'll find in the Bible. But the first four verses is a, is a capsulization, a summation, if you please, of the gospel. It's the greatest summation of the gospel found anywhere in the New Testament. Don't forget that. And in this passage, Paul first tells us what the gospel does. Then he tells us what the gospel is. Now, we're going to invert that for the sake of the message, but let's read the passage, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Have you ever read that? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, and again, in accordance with the scriptures. So clearly from verse 1, the subject of this is the gospel. It says right there. And in these four verses, I'm going to pose four questions that come right out of these verses for you and me. And they are these. What is it, the gospel? What is it? How do I receive it? What effect does it have on me personally? And then finally, how do I know if it's real in me? And these are questions you should be asking yourself. So without further ado, what is the gospel? The word you see in verse 1, it's actually delineated in verses 3 and 4. That is, it's, it's interpreted for us. But we're talking about the gospel. The, 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 the Greek word is eongalion. We get our word to, to rejoice or to, re, it, means to, it means to preach the gospel. It means good news. It's an exclusive New Testament word 76 times in the New Testament. But what I want you to look at verse 3 is, I delivered to you as of first importance. You see that? That's a statement without qualification. That's what makes the gospel so important. 
You might be from a church that loves discipleship or loves, you know, to study theology, that loves to get into the word, that loves to to focus on community. You can do all those things and go to hell. Because if you don't have the gospel, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. This is absolutely foundational to what we believe. Everything, everything is predicated on what we understand, what we believe, and what we have embraced, referring to the Eongalion, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we call ourselves, without shame, a gospel-centered church. We say, why don't you call yourself a Bible-centered church? Because we're a gospel-centered church, which preaches the whole counsel of God in the Bible, Right? Can I get an amen once in a while? A little feedback wouldn't hurt. Thank you. And I want you to note that in verses, uh, so again in verses 3 and 4, for I delivered you of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. There it is. You have the fact, you have a purpose, and you have a basis. The fact is that Christ died. That's a historical fact. Christ died. You have the purpose of his death for our sins. And you have the basis for why we believe in all of this. And it's not because of the historicity of it all, even though we don't doubt the history of Jesus' death. But in accordance with the what? With the scripture. In other words, the Bible declared that the Messiah would die, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and other Old Testament passages. But let's get right back to the purpose. For our sins. This is why Jesus died. This is the purpose. This is the why of his death. Just so that you know, those of you who have studied the life of Jesus, the perfect, marvelous life of Jesus and all of those wonderful works and miracles and teachings that he did couldn't save anyone as necessary as it was, as depicted in the Lord's table in the, in the bread. That's, the, that's a depiction of the perfect life of Jesus. But the perfect life of Jesus can't save you. Not without the death of Jesus. His death could, his death did. Hallelujah. That's why it says Christ died for our sins. That's baseball season. So if, if, on opening day, if I go three for three, what's my batting average? A thousand, right? Now if the next day I go three for four, that's pretty darn good. But what's my batting average? Now you math Nazis know I'm batting 857. Fantastic, but it's not 1,000%. Here's the question. How many consecutive at-bat hits would I need after that to get up to 1,000%? It's not possible. I could never be perfect again like I was on day one, ever. And this is exactly what the scripture says. Jesus said in, in, John, in Matthew chapter 5, 48, you must be perfect like your father is perfect. We can't be perfect, but he was, Amen. That's why it doesn't matter if you're Mother Teresa or Adolf Hitler. You are a sinner in need of a substitute. You are a sinner, and the gospel declares you need someone to die on your behalf, which is exactly what that little preposition for means. Christ died for our sins. In Greek, there are a couple different ways. There's a normal conjunction, gar means for. But this is the word huper. You don't need to write that down. You just need to know it's a theological term. 
Christ died literally on behalf of, in the place of. That's what that word means. This is why we theologians call the death of Jesus a substitutionary atonement. He died in your place, in my place. Hallelujah. A lot of criminals died on crosses in Jesus' day. All four are because of their own sins. Only one died on behalf of other sins, right? He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen? That's the substitutionary death. This is the gospel. And really, why, why did Jesus do that? I, my favorite line in all the New Testament as to why Jesus did this was given to us by Peter. He tells us that he might bring us to God. I love that. That's why Jesus did it. Because he wants to bring you to God. Because he wants to bring me to God. The gospel is Christ dying on our behalf in order to bring us to God. Alistair Begg, you know, the great Scotsman preacher out in Cleveland, uh, reminds us that it's a Scotsman who invented, you know, who's discovered penicillin, Alexander Fleming. But Begg, in a message he preached recently, said, if Fleming had not discovered penicillin, somebody else probably would have. But if Jesus had not died for our sins, nobody else could have. He's the only perfect one. That's part of the gospel, right? So Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and that he was what? What's the next line? Buried. Buried. That is an important element of the gospel. It's not the most important, but it's an important element. I remember I had a Bible college professor say, this, that's not really important. It's the fact that he died and rose again. And I remember in my mind, I thought, I don't like that. Because it's right there in the scripture. I mean, a whole conspiracy developed over this. Remember this? In Matthew chapter 28, after he rose, buried says that his life had ended. Let me tell you something. Criminals that were crucified on crosses didn't get to get buried. Joseph of Arimathea provided the grave. You know the story, many of you. A, a rich man, as the scripture said what happened, he was buried with the rich. He was placed in a tomb. You know what they did to people that were crucified? They left him up there so that the birds could pick at him, the dogs could get to them, the elements would have at them. Some of them would just literally rot on the cross. They'd eventually take him down because they didn't want him you know, stenching up there. They'd take him down and they'd throw him into Gehenna, which was a garbage pit right on the other side. They didn't get to be buried. Jesus was buried, thus confirming that he died. Amen? And then it says he was raised on the third day. See that there? I mean, that's, that's what we just sang hallelujah to. Amen? This is what makes the gospel good news. Again, it was on this platform many years ago, and I was sitting somewhere else. We had pews in those days, long time. I was just a visitor. I'm kidding. I was actually the pastor even then. Wow, I have been around for a while. Uh, but somebody up here stood there, and he said, he said, I can give you the gospel in five words. And I, that got my attention. He said, Christ died for our sins. And I remember thinking, that was a wrong statement. That is part of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. We just saw that. But, but if Jesus is dead, if he's still in the grave, that's not good news. He does, that doesn't make him any better than anybody else. But he rose. Amen? 
I mean, the entire argument of 1 Corinthians 15 is that he rose, and if, if he didn't rise, then our faith is vain, my preaching is empty, this is stupid, why are we here? But that's why he says, what is it, verse 23, but Christ has risen, and that gives us hope. The Greek, the Greek world where this was penned in that day believed that death caused everyone to cease from existence, or maybe some believed you'd have some shadowy existence. The, the idea that somebody would physically, bodily rise, or anybody else who would follow him, was absolutely, that was the stuff of fables. It was laughable. And if you think, well, that's way back then. Well, consider this. I was at a wedding of a friend's a few years back, and uh, it was a mainline pastor preaching. And he was literally preaching to the couple, calling the apostle Paul a chauvinist. And he said several other things that really ticked me off. I was beside myself, and afterwards I was beside him. <laughs> Caught him in the hallway. And so I said, what was, what was the purpose for a, even, even, even for a wedding? Why would you say those things? And he got very argumentative, argumentative doubled down on his arguments. And I finally said, dude, let's, let's get down to brass tacks. What's your, this is a pastor of the church. I said, what is your take on the resurrection? He said, dude, we're talking resuscitation. When you resuscitate somebody, that means they didn't really die. And if you have no death, you have no sacrifice. If you have no sacrifice, you have no atonement. You have no atonement, you have no salvation. We're still dead in our sins. So let me tell you something. That kind of cockamamie stuff is still going on today. And we are here to declare Jesus Christ died and has risen. Amen? This is the gospel. Just a few weeks ago, in fact, it was Easter when Dr. Nara Tastian was baptized. And this, this young physician made this comment in the middle of her baptism. I love it. The only person, you know, as a doctor, I've never seen somebody be dead for three days and live again. Did you catch that? I'm a doctor. I've never seen anybody dead for three days and then rise from the dead. Good point. <laughs> By the way, every time we meet on Sunday, we are declaring to the world he has risen, that he lives. And again, notice it's all in accordance with the scriptures. Psalm 16, again Isaiah 53, and Jesus even told us in Matthew 12 that Jonah himself was a sign, a picture, a type of Jesus as three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, right? So says the scripture. So that, what is the gospel? The gospel is Christ Jesus died on our behalf for our sins, was buried and rose again from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. That's the good news. But it's only good news if you have personally received it. It only becomes good news to you when you receive it. That hearkens me to the second point. How do I receive it? How do we, go back to verse 1. Remember the first, the, the, the last half of the 3 and 4, he's telling us what the gospel is. Now he's going to tell us what it does. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Here it is. This is how you receive it. I preach to you, which is what I'm doing right now. But by the way, the word preach doesn't mean, doesn't mean to get behind a pulpit. In fact, the word preached is an interesting word. It's, it comes from the same root word as the word gospel. It means to gospelize somebody. 
Literally, that's what you could call it. I gospelized you. It literally means to announce the good news. No one in this room watching online ever got saved without somebody announcing the good news to him or her. And that's why we preach the gospel every Sunday around here. No matter what, wherever we're at, you can make a beeline for it. It's not hard. It's the good news. And by the way, did you notice the humility of Paul in verse 3? I delivered to you as a first important, watch this, what I also what? What I also received. Paul is saying, look, I had to receive it before I gave it to you. By the way, who gave the gospel to Paul? We'll talk about that next week because that's part two of this sermon, okay? But go back to, he says, verse one, you received. Key word here. That's aorist tense, which means past tense. You don't receive Jesus over and over and over and over again. You receive him one time. If it's real, you take him in one time by faith, amen? Salvation is a gift. The gift of God is Eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, right? That's what the Bible says. Gifts, by definition, have to be what? Received. Just the other day, I was in a, I was in a coffee shop and with some guys, and somebody gave me a gift. And uh, so it was a really nice little gift, uh, but I had to get going after our study, and I got up and left, and I walked away from the gift. And in unison, they all turned around, and said, you forgot your gift. I went back and got it. A gift that is not received is not a gift at all. God has gifted us through his son, Jesus, but you have to receive it. The word means to take in. You, as many as received him, John writes in John 1.12, as many as received him, to them, God gave the exousia, the authority, the power, the right, that's the idea, to become the children of God, which was a very nice thing for him to do, amen? But you have to receive him by faith. Thirdly, what effect does it have on me? Now we're getting down to brass tacks. What effect does this gospel have on me, have on you? Well, the first thing you'll notice, it says, he says, I preach to you, which you received. Then he says, in which you, here's the effect, what? You stand. You stand. That's a great word means exactly what it sounds like. I remember reading years ago about a rancher out west during a time where there were some serious wildfires, and this, a massive wall of fire was heading toward his ranch. And so the, the rancher set a backfire all around his property, burning everything around the property. So when that wall of fire came, he just stepped onto the burned out area and the fire just went all around him and never consumed him or his property. Now, how did that happen? How did he avoid being burned up? Well, the answer is pretty simple, isn't it? The reason the fire didn't destroy him or his property is because judgment had already come. If you come to Jesus and receive him by faith, the cross declares it is finished. Judgment has already taken place. When you come to Jesus, you are stepping onto scarred ground. You're stepping onto sin-judged ground where the fires of hell have been endured, indeed, uh, indeed absorbed by Jesus. 
and you'll be saved. You stand. To stand also means when you stand in the gospel, that means that you can face everything this world or the devil can throw at you without wavering. And even if you do waver, you'll be reminded that the truth of God is yours and you stand on it forever. It doesn't matter every hurt, evil, fear, accusation, threat. You can declare, I stand on sacred ground. You can't take this away. This was the idea behind Martin Luther when he was confronted by the Roman authorities when they laid out all of his writings at Worms. And they said, you have to recant of these if you want your life to be spared. And Luther very famously responded by saying, I cannot and I will not recant. And then he famously said, here I what? Here I stand. Here I stand. Just the other day, a woman in our church who came to Christ a couple of months ago from really, really sinful circumstances, as is the case in many of your lives, my own included, but she just told me She just told me, she said, I was under so much temptation just the other day. And she told me about the temptation. And it was overwhelming her. And she went and started listening. And she started listening to these songs that we sing. The truths of God in those songs began began to help her to stand and resist the temptation. Which is exactly what Paul meant when he said to the Corinthians earlier on, there is no temptation taking you but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation provide the way of escape, right? For her, it was the music. The truth embedded in the music of God helped her to resist temptation. And if you know the gospel, then you will stand. It's a guarantee. Praise the Lord. And then he says, by which you are being saved. Do you love that? Wouldn't you rather it just says, by which, by which you are saved? Get that being part out of there. I mean, I just want to be saved, amen? But that's exactly what it says. By which you are being saved. It's present tense, the word saved. Why, why is it like that? And here's the answer. Here's the answer. Salvation while a guaranteed work is also an ongoing work, okay? You receive Jesus one time, once and for all. That's aorist. But here, this is present. I was saved on September 6, 1982, and I, placed my, I repented of my sin. I placed my faith in Jesus. I am being saved in June 2022 by the same power of God that saved me through the blood of Christ and his resurrection. And I will be saved when he takes me home and I'm glorified and I I can shirk all this temptation. Amen? But it's a guarantee. I say, "How how do you know that's a guarantee? That's kind of... Well, because of the scripture. Philippians 1, 6. Being confident of this very thing. He who began, that one time I received, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This is the gospel. This is what it does to you. Finally, 
How do I know if it's real in me? We're talking brass tacks now. How do you know it's real in you? Because I'm telling you right now, as I look at this crowd and wondering how many are watching online, there are probably many of you. You've, you've, you've got it in your mind. You believe the tenets, the, you know, the aspects of it, but you've never really received it for real in your heart. And the Apostle Paul was concerned about that. Is there evidence that you're being saved? Now, these words that I'm about to put up on the screen, well, you can just look at them in the text. He says it at the very end of verse 2. They, they're troublesome, but you need to look at them. There they are. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. The word vain, the Greek word vain, literally refers to something that is taken, listen to this, without serious consideration. You know, some of you, you know, we can go online now and we can, we can investigate everything before we buy it, can't we, right? I mean, you can, you're almost a fool to make a major purchase without really looking into it because you can just get into all the nuts and bolts of, of almost anything before you purchase it. And then once you know, you buy it. Some of you have prayed prayers. You've just said, oh, okay, yeah, I'll pray that. I'll, I'll pray and ask Jesus in my heart. My wife did. I'll do it. But you never gave it serious, heaven-sent spiritual consideration. And that's what Paul's concerned about here. He says, he says it, you're, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you're being, you believed in vain. Listen carefully. Some of you are thinking, wait, I thought it was God who held fast to me. He does. But Paul is saying here that you hold fast to God. The, the reformers called this the perseverance of the saints. Have you ever heard that expression before? The perseverance of the saints is simply the doctrine that says that if you really are saved, you will persevere. You'll push through. You won't capitulate. You won't throw it all in. You won't cash it all in. You will endure to the end. If God holds fast to our souls, we will hold fast to his word. And our ongoingness, I just made that word up, by the way. Our ongoingness is God's proof of purchase, both to ourselves and to those who are watching, that we are his. You say, can you prove that with the Bible? Yeah, can. Jesus said in John chapter 8, and many of you know this, he said, he said this, he said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Have you ever read that? And he said, then you'll know the truth. And the truth will what? It'll set you free. It'll free you up. Michelangelo was the greatest sculptor in the history of the world. Many of his works are there in the Vatican. But Michelangelo, literally, this is true. He, he was known to look at a block of marble and see the finished product. Okay? Before he ever laid a chisel to it. This is kind of cool. He called his blocks of, he called his unfinished statues, he called them his prisoners that he was about to release. That's what you are. Outside of Jesus Christ, you're a prisoner. You're a block of marble. 
But if God has his mark upon you, he is looking at the finished product. And even if you are a Christian, then every whack with that hammer of the chisel, every single one into your life, and many, some of it is very painful, right? It's painful. But every single whack of that chisel upon you is a necessary whack. Every single one is. It's all of God's desire and his process by which he's freeing you until the day where he frees you forever. Amen? How can you know that your salvation is real? You'll know it's real when no matter what is happening in your life, you can say with David, you can say with David, your loving kindness is better than life itself. Therefore, my lips will praise you. You can say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. You can say with Asaph, another writer of the Psalms, you will guide me with your eye, afterward receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I have none besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you can say that, it's real. It is real. And then you'll discover that you are God's sculpture, being chiseled, and through every painful blow, you are being released from this world. And by the way, looking more like Jesus. Here's the question. Now you know the gospel. Have you received it? Remember, to receive it in vain means you haven't given it careful consideration. Christ, Jesus, died for you. He died for you. He died for you. For you. He was buried. And he rose again for you. And he declares to us through his son Jesus that as many as received him, took him in, to them, God gives the right to become the children of God. And the block, the figure in the marble, is released. Amen? Amen. Have you been released? Let's pray. God, we love you and bless your name for the gospel. That which we love, that which we God, without it, we're, we're, we're done. We have nothing. And how grateful we are for the good news and that it was announced to us. Oh, thank you for those people who came into our lives and told us about Jesus. And thank you for bringing us to repentance, those of us who know you, and causing us to receive your son, Jesus. And now, Lord, we love you for it. And we will we'll sit it, we'll stand as steady as we can as the chisel comes upon, on us. But I pray, Lord, for those in this room who've never really taken it as seriously.
as they should have, and they know it, and they're in, their, in your heart right now. Maybe you're like Kaylee. You're embarrassed. I mean, my goodness, what are people going to say? Are you kidding me? Like Kaylee, you need to humble yourself. Acknowledge your sin right now before God and say, Lord, I, I have never taken it as serious as I, as I needed to. This is real. Thank you for your great love. I need it. I need to be forgiven of my sins. I need Jesus to come into my life and save me. I'm asking him to do so now. Is that your heart? Would you pray that right now? And be freed. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.